0: He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud?
1: Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. once again be your host. I'm here with the rest of the Munson's. want to give them a wide berth. It's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. Rigby.
2: Since the
3: last time that we spoke, Warner Brothers announced that they're going to put all their movies next year on HBO Max in the same time that they're in theaters, which for anybody that knows me, I hate going to movie theaters. So that's a dream come true. Um, it might be a a hot-button issue, but I, I love that. So, pretty good things in the movie world ahead.
2: I knew I was in the minority, but I definitely enjoyed going to theaters. But I also agree that it's probably not going to last. Yep.
1: And that's accompanied with all the Disney announcements that we just heard about all the Star Wars stuff that's coming out in the next yep. five years or whatever it is, and all, all the, the Marvel, Marvel projects. shitload of
4: announcements,
1: man. Holy hell. I don't even think they've gotten to Marvel yet. It's It's been all the the Star Wars stuff up to this point.
0: Yeah, all those other
1: nerds. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Case.
0: Since the last time we talked, I've been uh, suffering from crippling depression because HBO Max announced that they're going to start having movies direct to <laughs> the app instead of the movie theater. And that's the most prized social event I had on my calendar. So I'm shit out of luck. <laughs>
3: I hate going to theaters because you just don't have to worry about people crumpling their bag around you or talking. It's great. You can just sit back in your couch and enjoy the movie from your own home. Oh, I love going to the movie theater. So I am going to miss it.
1: James.
2: Yeah, so over Thanksgiving, we recorded. And uh, while I was recording, afterwards, I came downstairs. And I was staying with my parents for the holiday. And my mom actually said that I should start a podcast and that she could see me doing one. And then that's when I informed her that I've actually been doing one for almost a year. And I subscribed her and my dad myself. So we have two new subscribers. Uh, but whether or not they actually listen to this is another thing. I'll find out at the, the next family gathering in six months or so. When they
1: ask you again if, uh, if you've started your podcast yet?
2: It's probably going to be more so like... James, where did you learn those words? No, it'll be like, hey, I can't take pictures on my phone anymore. Can you delete some of these podcasts off of it? All right, Warren.
4: I just got done making a batch of uh, butterscotch brownies. They turned out awesome, so I'm, like, super domesticated right now. That's about it. Mr. Mom over there. That
2: sounds delightful.
4: They are awesome.
1: Well, like uh, James had mentioned, he was terrified by it. I made the mistake today of... One of my uh, seventh graders, I told them in class that I used to be terrified of Chucky when I was a kid, and one of the kids literally made fun of me for it. They were like, oh, Chucky was funny. Ha ha ha. And I was like, wow, this kid just destroyed my soul. Just made fun of me for uh, being scared of Chucky as a kid. That's cool. (laughs) I'm glad my my self-esteem has really gone in the positive today.
2: His opinion sucks. It wasn't funny
1: (laughs) at all.
4: It would have been great if he thought you were talking about Chucky Finster from the Rugrats. and I not, did. Uh,
2: <laughs> not funny. Chucky was a very sad character.
1: Warren, He's now old. that you say that, there's a distinct possibility that he definitely thought I was talking about Chucky Finster from Rugrats, because I did not clarify. Someone else mentioned like murder at some point, but uh, who knows? I think it's a good point.
4: You haven't seen the Rugrats like behind, like all grown up? Chucky, Chucky is like, he is a killer.
1: Is he? <laughs> I would not be surprised in the slightest bit. Um, (laughs) But what we will do is talk about uh, our returning guest, our good friend, Dan Craig. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Thank you, sir. Appreciate being here. Hello, sir. All right. This is awesome. Good to have you back. Thanks. Good to be back. Mr. Craig. So if you did not listen to the Chris O'Dowd episode, then you won't know necessarily who Dan Craig is. But Dan is a high school English and film teacher. He's our favorite film teacher. And he has the dubious distinction of knowing Craig Case for the past 20 years. Previous guest... And, uh, you know, we're just happy to have him back.
5: You know, in college, I had a radio show. And uh, for whatever reason, we were huge in Brazil. Yeah, so maybe that's a, a good sign for what we have going on here. Maybe this <laughs> one will be huge in Brazil. Are you saying that your Brazil yeah. fan base has followed you for years? And it's been maybe they have. They've been name? looking for a long time.
0: Are you serious? You had a, you had a college radio show and you guys were popular in Brazil? We were, yeah.
5: We was like one of the first internet radio shows or stations in the country. And uh, people could get our show, you know, online. We were one of the first ones to uh, to do that, and uh, we had a map. It would light up, and it would tell you where people were calling in from. And Brazil, like in the Rio de Janeiro area, for whatever reason, was uh, was packed. Yeah, in downloading our show, that's awesome. That's great.
0: That's hilarious.
5: Craig's
1: fan club. Don't ask me why. We'll see if they turn up again for this episode. Yeah, I mean, we're uh,
2: tapping into that. So let's
1: go. Yeah, whatever fan base we can get our <laughs> hands on, we'll take it, Dan. So we appreciate it. <laughs> Sounds good. Birthdays, December 17th, what we got, worn
4: All right, birthdays. We're going to start it off with Sarah Paulson. Her name was Sarah Paulson. Uh, <laughs> American Horror Story series, Mud, 12 Years a Slave,
2: Ratchet, and What Women Want. How old is Sarah Paulson? Ooh. I have no idea because she gets cast in roles where she's like, The young hotshot and, like, the old grandma. And I feel like I've only seen her in movies for, like, or shows for, like, the last five years. I truly have no concept of her age at this point. I'll start the bidding. I'll do 53, Warren. You could be off by 20 years, and I have no idea. (laughs) Give me 46.
0: I'm going to go 38.
2: Oh, I was going to go there. Uh, I'll go 42. Uh, I'll say 48. All right,
4: 46, Hickman on the dot. Nice, guys. Yeah. What a Um, Google,
0: Kyle.
4: (laughs) 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 Next up, we got Bill Pullman. Baseballs, Independence Day, Lake Placid, and Independence Day Resurgence.
5: (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough set. How old is Sir Bill? 60.
3: 64. He's old. He was old in Independence Day.
5: 63. 61?
4: 68. 67.
3: Wow. So wow. You, got, you guys all hit
4: it right with the 60s, so good job there. I don't know who won that one, but we uh, no were all six six enough.
1: close enough. Close I went over. Someone said 65, yeah.
4: Last but not least, we got Milia Jovovich from Days of Confused, Fifth Element, and any of the last five Resident Evil movies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just saw the, uh, the, the Monster Hunter uh, trailer just got released, too, that she's going to be the star in.
4: And they've been working on that one for like a
0: year and a half.
4: 45.
0: I'll go 44. Give me 47 then.
4: 46. 42. I'll go low. We're just peppering the 40. Well, 45 on the dot.
2: That's right. Wow. Put the W.
4: (laughs) There are some other pretty good birthdays today. Um, I know like Eugene Levy's birthday is today Mm. and uh, a couple others, but I forgot. And happy birthday to all you people who I forgot your birthdays. You're that important.
1: All right, we had five actors that we pulled onto the wheel from our list. Those five were Alexandra Daddario, Maya Rudolph, Robert Redford, Lake Bell, and Tim Roth, and The Wheel Hath Spoken. We're going to spend a, a good amount of time discussing Tim Roth and his career. A little FYI before we start digging into his filmography, he's got about a little over 100 credits on his on his resume. Most of those are movies. He's got eight TV movies baked into there, and we're
2: covering them all. <laughs>
1: yeah. Mm. Uh, hey, if we didn't cover TV movies, we wouldn't have discussed uh, Christina Applegate as a hooker a, a heroin-addicted hooker in the movie Streets. <laughs> and so. that's important to know her
2: <laughs> career arc. You need to know that fact.
1: <laughs> you got to know how the producers of Married with Children somehow weren't protecting her and taking yeah. trash roles early in her career. So It's important. But yeah, most of his work is television or uh, movies. He did a little bit of television early on. Um, and he's done some a couple bigger roles uh, as his career went along, but a lot of British programming early on. So, as we always do, Start with a little actor trivia. James.
2: Dan, you've been a part of this podcast. You know the rules. Uh, I'm going to spit out three facts here. you got to guess which one is not true about Tim Roth. And I'll give you guys a little heads up. This guy had so many interesting facts about his life that I had to cut many out. Love that. He is super fascinating. So I will try to pepper them in throughout the podcast because they are really interesting. But I was able to narrow it down. um, And so here we go. Fact number one. He had jaundice as a baby and was put on antibiotics, which rotted out his teeth. He didn't actually have a normal set of teeth until he was 11 years old when his adult teeth grew in. Gross. Hmm. (laughs) Fact number two. (laughs) His acting career got started by pure chance. Uh, He happened to have a flat tire on his bike, wandered into a theater that was holding auditions. He asked to audition and ultimately got the leading role. And then fact number three. Once landed a leading role in a movie without auditioning for it by meeting the director for drinks at a bar, then inviting the director over to his house to drink more, getting him drunk, and then convincing him while they were both wasted he was the best person to cast for
1: the role. It's <laughs> good. Wow. I'm going number three because I guarantee you that's how Vin Diesel got the job for Fast and Furious. <laughs> <so I> guarantee. <laughs> He was pounding Coronas into that director, bro.
0: I thought it was number one, because I, I thought I read that about Justin Lin, the director of Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Very common. This happens to every baby, so everyone
3: knows this. <laughs> I think one is the lie, too. Uh, I just don't know. I'm trying to think of a Fast and Furious character that would be <laughs> Paul Walker. Mm, classic. R.I.P. <laughs>
4: yeah, I'm actually going to say it was number one as well, the, uh, the teeth. But... Uh, that that was actually uh cardi b who is a character in the upcoming fast nine <laughs>
2: <laughs> got a bag and fixed my teeth hope you know that any <laughs> told
0: you
5: i was going to go with one as well but i was leaning towards uh, michelle rodriguez for that but
2: nice so no one guessed number 2 um and you guys were correct that is in fact true uh so his acting career started By pure chance, he was interested in acting and wanted to get into acting, um, but he had no formal training and had actually dropped out of college and was just working odd jobs as delivery guy, doing uh, door-to-door sales, and um, got a flat tire, walked into a theater where his bike tire popped, asked if they had a pump. They saw him and said, wow, you look great for this role that we're casting. Come back for auditions tomorrow, and that is where he got the leading role in Made in Britain when he was 21 years old. Wow. Fact number three is also, in fact, true. That is the story in which he got the director drunk at a bar, then got him more drunk at his house, and without actually auditioning for the role, just convinced him he was the best person to cast in the role. And that is the true story of how Tim Roth landed the breakout role as Mr. Orange in Reservoir Dogs. That's awesome. <laughs> he just That's got great Quentin Tarantino nice. wasted and was like, hey, uh, you know, you, you and I are... You know, we've seen each other's work. I love to be in this. The script is amazing. I don't really do auditions. And Tarantino wanted him to be Mr. Blonde. And he's like, no, I really like Mr. Orange. I want to be the liar. And
3: he's like, okay. yeah."
2: Whoa, spoiler. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll get into uh, the, we'll try not to spoil that, that, that movie from, what is that, 1990 when that came out? 92. 92. <laughs> there you go, Ooh. 92. So yeah, it can um, drink. And then fact number one, wild you guys all got this. He did not have jaundice as a baby and lose all of his teeth. That was, in fact, about the main villain from Fate and the Furious named Cypher, which is the career-defining role for Charlize Theron. And that is a
1: fact about her. Wow. Hmm. I'd say she's recovered nicely. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean, she didn't get teeth until she was 11. And I'm pretty confident she was, like, supermodel by 18. So things worked out okay for her.
1: Well, now you've intrigued me, James, for the, the day we do the Charlize Theron episode. Uh, also, wild cool. life.
2: I can't wait to
1: dive into that, but this is all about Tim Roth and boy, does he have some stories to share? Yes. That's good. Case, tell us a little bit about his snapshot and box office history.
0: This one was fun to look at because like he brought up, he's, he's had a ton of movies, right? And he's a movie guy and then everything else. And so we had a lot of box office info and, um, we were able to have one giant box office performance and then two not one, but two of the lowest box office performances we've looked at. We'll start with the one that, that he did great. On our list of our 25 actors and actresses, this film ranks number two for its return on investment. and in, in other words, how much was budgeted? How much did the movie end up making? This film is number two, and it is behind number one, which was Alice and Janie and Juno. Hmm. Who knows the Tim Roth movie that made a truckload of money. Would it be Reservoir Dogs? It is not Reservoir Dogs. Pulp Fiction, got to be Pulp Fiction. It is Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction budgeted out for 8 million and it's uh world gross was 214 million dollars. 25 times. It's um it's original budget, which is insane. However, the more interesting numbers for me, this movie so a, a uh, months is at the Movie record for most money lost, and that was fifty-two million dollars lost. Anybody have a guess on which movie lost fifty-two million dollars that Tim Ross stars in?
1: Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. Guaranteed. Yeah. Nope. No. All that Hulk? with all that makeup. Hulk. Yeah. Nope. Hmm. Huh? Not Incredible Hulk. Huh?
0: Fifty-two million. So much money. This movie was budgeted for sixty-three million dollars, and it world grossed eleven. Whoa. Shit. Starring Tim Ross and John Travolta. Lucky numbers. Oh. Oh. Lost $52 million. Okay. But here's the crown jewel of low points for the months at the movie. And I know we're going to talk about this movie later. In United Passions. <laughs> United Passions sets a record for um, lowest opening for us. Now, granted, it only opened in 10 theaters. Who wants to take a guess at how much this movie brought in on opening weekend?
1: Uh, it's eight grand. Yeah,
4: if, it, if it's a low. $180. $1,000. bucks.
0: right. Well, Warren, you win with Price is Right rules at $918. Wow. Yeah, oh my buddy. God. <laughs> this movie performed so poorly, the Hollywood Reporter actually did an article on it. And I'm just going to read you this paragraph because it sums it up. The top performing theater, as it were, was... Langley's no-, no Ho Seven in North Hollywood with $249, followed by the Sherlington Seven in Hangerstown outside of Washington, D.C., with $192. New York City's Cinema Village Three reported $140 in sales tickets or ticket sales. At the other end of the spectrum, it appears that only two people went to see the film at ACM Cherry Hill 24 in Philadelphia, <laughs> which reported $22 in revenue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the next big Hollywood movie. I want to know the story of those two people went to see that movie. That's the next mank.
0: United Passions also played in Phoenix, Kansas City, Miami, Minneapolis, Houston, and Dallas. $918.
1: Oh, United Passions. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Thanks, Case. All right. So as James had mentioned, his first feature film, you know, a lot of times when we cover actors, their first feature film that we review isn't necessarily their first role ever. It's a couple roles in after they've gotten through the cameos and the really small appearances. Pretty wild that his his first feature film is going to be his first role ever. And as James had mentioned, um, he got it in a very unconventional, unpredictable way. But before 1982, some other pieces to add in there that James didn't hit. Context: Both his parents are painters; they're artists, so he comes from an artist family, uh, not justly acting, but still artists. And at one point, he changed his last name from Smith. To the family name Roth, because he's a very anti-Nazi person and uh, wanted to honor his family's heritage and background by making that change. Which
2: is so brave of him to be anti-Nazi. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, at least he changed his name. I you know? can't say that for most people.
2: I mean, I love seeing actors and actresses go out on limbs like this <laughs> and just denounce
1: Nazis, well, it's, you know, it's good for that. Good to know because he—you'll see a pattern in some of the roles he takes on over his career that relates to that decision he made early on. As Jameson mentioned, he attended London's Camberwell College of Arts. He was in sculpture, so he was going to school to be a sculptor. And he's always been super talented with accents, even when he was young. That that kind of gave him a leg up when he started getting his early roles. And as Jameson mentioned, he has no formal acting training whatsoever. But he's learned with the best of him as he's went along. So all that gets us to 1982, where he walked into a a theater, looking for a bike pump, and uh, ran into the uh, the auditions for Made in Britain. So I'll be covering that one. I'm not going to talk much about the movie itself, because if you haven't seen it, I, I think it'd be cool. If you're listening, go check it out. It's only an hour and like 20 minutes long. It's a short movie. Uh, it's available on Amazon Prime. But basic gist, Roth plays a character named Trevor. After a stint in juvenile hall, he clashes with social services the entire movie. And they're just trying to help him change his ways uh, from being a a little shit, essentially, for causing mayhem and for everybody around him. He's a skinhead. He's got a swastika in the middle of his forehead. He's got a scorpion on his neck. He's a very stereotypical racist Nazi in Britain, hence the uh, Made in Britain title to the film. There's no happy ending here. Slight spoiler. There's nothing but prison in his future and uh, maybe a a chance to learn how to obey authority. I guess we'll find out. But I'd rather talk about him in the role, and then if you guys watched it, any of your thoughts on that. So to add some more context to James's story, so not only did he walk in and get that role, but he said he went in, they said, hey, you should come back and audition. So he came back a couple days later for the audition. And he showed up 30 minutes early. So they, they said, hey, you need to come back. So he goes across the street to the park. And he knows that the casting crew can see him out of the window in the park. So he has one of his like rough-and-tumbled buddies from a band come through. And they basically get into a little scuffle out there. And he did it intentionally because he wanted to see that he was kind of a badass. And he, when he tells the story now, he says he got the role in nefarious ways. Because after the movie, yes. the director's like you do realize the reason I hired you for this role is because of what I saw in the park. He's like, yeah, I'm well aware. I, I play in that. You know, smart, smart cat early in his career like that. He's a good asshole in the role. And you get tons of English slang. So bollocks, nicking, and wankers are said like every other word from his mouth in that movie. And his facial expressions, I've noticed early on in his career, like really outlandish, egregious facial expressions with his character. So I don't know. Who else saw this? Any thoughts on Made in Britain?
2: One thing that's important to note here
1: is he
2: already changed his name and was outspoken and denounced the kind of militant skinhead but also punk scene that was developing in England at this young of an age so he did that in high school and so he gets this role he's like the reason why I was able to nail my first role is because I grew up with this exact person mm-hmm. like i i was surrounded by this my entire life um and he was actually beaten up so often coming from a working-class town, but had these issues in it, and he's not a big guy, and he was beaten up so often that he had to move high school. He didn't really get into the acting world in a conventional way, as Kyle mentioned, but he didn't even get into the art world via his parents. He got into it because of a place called the Institute of Contemporary Arts, which is a big, fancy name, but it's actually just three dudes in London who uh, would have, like, people come in and do their performance art or is really unconventional stuff and he said it changed his life he's like it was uh i went in there and i saw these tough looking guys and they're talking about sculptures and interpretive dance and he's like and i never really understood it and he gave me some kind of artistic credibility and so that would make sense that i didn't know the story you just mentioned about him staging a fight it would make sense for his first audition he's like i'm gonna do something a little uh non-conventional here and mm-hmm. see if it
1: works. And it absolutely works. Because Alan Clark, the director, ended up getting him his next job, too. He impressed enough on that film. Yeah. So Maiden Britain, he comes out of the gate and, and makes a pretty big impact on the on the British scene for what, you know, some would might consider it a cult classic from that standpoint. After that, you see a, a run on a lot of British roles. So in 83, he's in Meantime as a character named Colin. He says this is still one of his favorite projects years later. 84 is when he really hit the scene over in UK with his role as Myron in The Hit. He actually replaced Joe Strummer of The Clash for that role after he couldn't, yeah. he couldn't do it because of s- stuff with the BAM. Oh, wow. And uh, he ended up getting a BAFTA nomination for Best Newcomer. He ended up losing to Wang Gore of uh, The Killing Fields. Oh, damn. The guy who had never been an actor before and did a story about his home country of Cambodia.
2: I didn't even know that story until that movie.
1: Losing to Hang Noir, that's... Pretty stiff competition. He also won the, the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor that year as well. So
2: Yeah, especially uh, when it's your second role and you're like 23 yeah. and you've never acted once in your life.
5: But neither did that guy either. Hang Norr never acted before in his life either.
2: Oh, that is a good point. Yeah, you know what? What a loser.
1: I'm knocking Tim Roth <laughs> for that. You're right. <laughs> that, that poor guy got murdered in like 96 by a bunch of gang members too. That yeah, he did. Poor guy. Holy shit. Bafta nom early on in his, what, his third or fourth role at that point in time. Crazy. 84, he's in Return to Waterloo, plays a boy punk, which is, it's an hour-long, it's like musical theater almost. It was made by Ray Davies of the Kinks, so another one of the band members from the um, the British punk scene at that time. And Roth actually sings in it. I'm not going to say it's great singing, but you see a lot of the same, like, animated facial expressions and a lot of, like, this is where he starts to establish himself in that in that British scene from an acting standpoint.
4: I mean, most punk isn't great singing anyway. So he did a pretty good job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a, that's a very fair point. It's not melodic necessarily.
4: Uh, Especially in the eighties in the British scene. Like (laughs) if you go back and listen to some of that garage stuff, those guys suck, but yeah, it was pioneer
1: movement. 86. He's in King of the ghetto. Also in 86 is when there's an article written about the Brit pack which was um, kind of a a reaction to the American version of the Brat Pack. That group of British actors that they, they wrote about was like Colin Firth, Gary Oldman, Tim Roth, Daniel Day Lewis, like all these up-and-coming actors in in Britain. So he's with good company Absolutely at that point in time. Better actors than the Brat Pack. <laughs> <laughs> no question, they crushed the U.S. version. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree. Even just Firth, Oldman, and Daniel Day Lewis—they're pretty ridiculous trio yep. there. That's five Oscars between the three of them. That's crazy. Keep going, right? Other British work. He's in A World Apart in '88. He's in To Kill a Priest in '88. A Fine Romance. He does one episode of the show A Fine Romance. And it's funny, uh, you can catch it on YouTube. He plays a trombone assassin. Um, not that he assassinates trombones, but he uses a trombone to kill somebody in the in the show, which is you know completely random. But
2: important to clarify.
1: <laughs> important, very important. I didn't know how to write that, so I was like, I gotta clarify this. <laughs> like you're like he's killing trombones. What the hell were they making in Britain in 1989? What's going on? <laughs> Valid question. But then 89 in a movie that I know. I think it's Rigby had mentioned this one. The Cook, the Thief, his wife and her lover, he plays Mitchell in that one. I've never seen it. It sounds like people like it.
3: People love it for some reason. It's atrocious. I took a film class uh, in my sophomore year of college, and my professor said it was his favorite movie ever. Ouch. Wow.
2: He was messing with you.
3: I was so excited because I really liked my professor, and then I watched it. It's the most like gaudy graphic. It's just so absurd. And Tim Ross' character is really annoying because he's basically like this goon in – the lead villains gang who just like never shuts the fuck up in the movie. Not a fan of it. I don't know why people like it. Probably because it's so ridiculous and outlandish, but just because movies are outlandish and crazy doesn't mean they have to be critically claimed.
1: Well, we just, yeah. lo- we just lost our professor <laughs> listening audience. They're gone. <laughs> They're gone. Yeah, yeah, go jackass <laughs>
2: <laughs> slams
1: on the brakes and
2: says, I'm done with this podcast.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck
4: them. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't hear that anyways. They already turned it off.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, he hit the U.S. scene in 90 uh, when he was Vincent Van Gogh in Vincent and Theo. I watched a little bit, not my favorite portrayal of Vincent Van Gogh personally, but uh, I prefer the Willem Dafoe, but, you know, got himself out into some U.S. audiences. But to swing us back... To the British side, uh, he's in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. He plays Guildenstern in 90 alongside um, our boy Gary Oldman. Yep. The offshoot of, of Hamlet. I don't know if any, any of y'all watched this or have seen it. Oh, it's a great movie.
5: I didn't. I wish I would have. Seriously, it's
1: worth your time. It's a really, really cool movie.
3: Richard Dreyfuss, too.
1: Yeah. They've got good banter between each other, for sure. Yeah. And he got the job because Daniel Day-Lewis had to back out. He had his like very public mental breakdown. Yeah. And he was supposed to be Gilder and as soon as he backed out, they hired Tim Roth.
2: Wow, Tim Roth and Gary Oldman are—they're really good friends, so it makes mm-hmm. sense that they have good chemistry together.
1: I watched most of it. I'll be honest; these types of period pieces, like Hamlet, Shakespeare-type of stuff, I get really bored quickly. But the scene Dan where they're uh, like playing—if mm-hmm. it's like on a badminton court when they're doing like their verbal badminton—that is a really genius in creative scene it's funny right mm-hmm. yeah it's really funny but after that 91 he's in an episode of tales from the crypt which you can find on YouTube it's called easel kill Ya. Uh, so we see some some callbacks to his his artist sculptor days but the base of the his character in that particular episode uh, for the tales of the crypt tales from the crypt fans is uh he's a struggling artist and he accidentally kills his neighbor and then paints his dead neighbor and then this guy this art dealer starts buying and paying insane amounts of money for his art so he ends up starting to kill more people so he can create art and sell it to make some money
2: they got to bring tales from the crypt back dude it was great Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah, i agree james tales from the crypt was was a really cool show it'd be interesting to bring it back at some point um they did uh Twilight Zone, so I don't see why they wouldn't do Tales from the Crypt again. That takes us to 92 in one of his most famous roles as Mr. Orange in Reservoir Dogs, as we talked about earlier. Oh, fantastic movie. Absolutely. I said
3: earlier in the week, this is my favorite Tarantino movie. It's Tarantino's first movie, obviously, and it sort of launched him to... uh, Pulp Fiction probably launched him into the stratosphere, but Reservoir Dogs is what got people to notice him. Um, And Tim Roth carries the movie. He and Harvey Keitel, their chemistry is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, they spend half the movie... Basically bleeding to death yeah. and arguing and shoot and shooting at each other. But it, this is a movie that I could watch over and over again. Um, James, you nailed it with the opening scene where they're at the the diner and they they're arguing about you know tips and waitresses. I mean, like Tarantino had a style from the get go, and and Roth is a big part of that. I think it has probably I would say the the scene where the cop gets his ear cut off is yeah. probably one of the more they're- famous. Torture scene
1: scenes, up. yeah, for probably one of the most famous
3: movie scenes from the '90s, just because people people remember that
1: stuck in the middle with you. Steelers wheel couldn't couldn't pay for better marketing from Steelers wheel right there.
4: I actually like when it comes to characters in this movie, like Steve Buscemi's really good at it because he's like his you know kind of neurotic, neurotic guy who's just like he's freaking yeah. out. He's just his voice is different from everyone else. Harvey Keitel is like the the calm presence. I actually don't care for Tim Roth in this movie. Wow. I I honestly think you can throw anybody in his role and... Because, like, in the first scene, which I view as the best scene in the movie, no. he doesn't say a single word. He doesn't. <laughs> like, he, he, says, he says, like, two words.
1: And I point to James' original comment in the trivia that Roth wanted this role because he liked the deceit of the character. The idea of, yep. of being almost three different roles at once. He liked that a lot more than Mr. Blonde. And then finally, in uh, 93, uh, he was in Heart of Darkness as Marlowe. It's a really good version of Heart of Darkness, actually. You said when Malkovich was pretty good in that? Yeah, he's off the rails. Like, you
5: know, you think Brando in Apocalypse Now is basically playing the same role, but Malkovich does
1: like the original version of it here from the the book. He's pretty, you know, he's pretty good. Love it. Have to check it out at some point. And that takes us to 94 and his highest critic score. So we're going to hit a bunch of reviews right in a row because the mid-90s is when a lot happens in his career from a category standpoint. And the first one is highest critic score, and that's uh, his second Tarantino film, Pulp Fiction, and Rigby's got it.
3: I'll, I'll skip the review portion of it just because, A, I suck at giving reviews, and B, the, the plot is nonlinear and it's confusing as fuck that I don't want to – I still to this day can't even decipher it. It's about foot massages or something, I think. <laughs> right?
2: I'm sure it's about foot massages and, uh,
3: and quarter or and Royals with cheese basically and burgers and fries. Exactly.
2: Yeah. The metric system in France doesn't take into account quarter pounders,
3: (laughs) but Tim Roth and um, Amanda Plummer are the two actors in the opening scene. I'm sure everyone's seen Pulp Fiction. They're at the diner. They're talking um, typical Tarantino, just witty dialogue that opens the movie. You're like, okay, what are these people up to? And then the scene ends and the opening credits roll after they uh they announce that they're um that they're holding up the diner. I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. Um I don't know why. Part of the reason is the the I, it's it is so experimental that um you know, res- we talked about Reservoir Dogs and the and the non-linear plot. I think that non-linear plot works works well and works to a point where I enjoy it. Pulp fiction is just it's kind of so in your face that um I don't know. It's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. The acting in it is fantastic, including Tim Roth. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually learned just in my general research that Tarantino wrote the part with Tim Roth in mind. Uh That's a big nod to his acting skills when someone, you know, like, like a Tarantino writes a script basically in your voice, picturing you doing it. But yeah, I mean, we can open up the discussion here because we've all seen Pulp Fiction. We've all seen the famous scenes, the dialogue. We all know the lines, Uh but I'll just say that I, I, Or as heralded as as this movie is, it's not up there in my list of of favorite crime thrillers, favorite movies from the 90s. I mean, and I feel like everybody I know kind of has it at their top. It's just not one for me. Hmm. I'm going to open up the discussion there. I don't really think we need to get into the review
1: of the movie. The legend behind why he got the role with Amanda Plummer is the funniest right case where yeah. he told yeah. Tarantino, like all I, all I want in this scene is for to be in it with Amanda Plummer and for her to have a big ass gun. And he's like, all right, we'll make it work.
3: Done. Yeah. I mean, Tim Roth obviously is only in the last two sequences. He's in the opening and the, and the yeah. closing.
1: He bookends it.
3: Right. And that, the part about the, the, the closing monologue, guess you could say from Samuel Jackson, where he's talking to Tim Roth, talking about like how he's buying, he's basically paying for his life. Um, that's a cool, m- cool moment to end the movie on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. It uh, It's one of those movies that I just, I just struggle with, man. I don't know why I want to like it, but I just struggle with it.
1: The escalation in the robbery scene is just really fun to watch as, oh, they're, yeah, as totally. they're talking through like, yeah, no one, th- People all have wallets in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah, by the way, it's a robbery, motherfuckers. <laughs> for
5: years, this is that's my final exam film, is Pulp Fiction. That's the movie they got to watch for the
1: final. Wow. Damn. Good, because
2: that movie rocks. I don't know why Rigby doesn't like it. I'm going back to high oh, yeah. school,
1: bro. Let's go. <laughs> for the record, I'm not, I'm not obsessed with Pulp Fiction either. I, I actually, after re-watching Reservoir Dogs, I like Reservoir Dogs better than Pulp Fiction.
2: Yeah. Uh, this movie rocks. Uh, Rigby, I don't know why I don't like it. It's weird. <laughs>
1: All right, uh, 94. We're we're already in 94. So um, he's in Little Odessa, plays character named Joshua. I mentioned this because one of our Instagram follows said that's one of uh, her favorite roles of his. Never seen it. Uh, Eddie Furlong's in the movie, but uh, he's in Little Odessa. And then he made two career... Interesting career decisions in 94 as well. He turned down two roles. He turned down um, Tom Sizemore's role in Natural Born Killers. Also turned down Hugh Grant's role in Four Weddings and a Funeral.
5: Both of those movies are better off. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Can you see him in Four Weddings and a Funeral?
1: He's Absolutely not really not. No, he's
5: giving no, off no. a weird vibe. In that movie. He's a tough guy. That was not a
2: tough guy role.
5: Yeah.
1: It's interesting.
4: Unless he shows up with his like made in Britain with like a swastika on his forehead. Then, (laughs) then I might pay attention to that movie.
1: (laughs) It's got a really dark wedding and funeral movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So 95 hits, and we run into our Munson's choice. And so if you're a 1st time listener, our guest Munson gets a chance to pick a role um, outside of our normal five categories. And in this case, Dan chose Rob Roy, which is his only Oscar-nominated role in his career. It sure is. Uh, I'm psyched to talk about it.
5: I actually just finished watching it about 10 minutes before uh, we started this podcast tonight. Fresh. Uh, like I said, 1995, Rob Roy is the story of the Scottish folk hero, Robert Roy McGregor, played by Liam Neeson. Um, And notwithstanding today, I hadn't seen the movie since it first came out in 95. And I just remember thinking, what a badass villain Tim Roth is Mm -hmm. in that movie. And that opinion definitely still holds up 25 years later. He's incredible. Like, he is such an asshole in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Both my kids came upstairs at the very end for the final um, sword fight between Liam Neeson and Tim Roth, which is an awesome sword fight, by the way. And uh, like Tim Roth basically gets sawed in half right, at the end of it. And, spoiler alert, it's a 25-year-old movie. <laughs> and one of my sons asked, you know, well, well, how come he's fighting? It's like, well, okay. See that guy right there? And I pointed to Tim Roth. Like He burned down that guy's home he killed his best friend. He killed his cattle, shot his dog, and raped his wife. Yeah, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay, he deserves to die.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no disagreement here. <laughs> the movie itself is pretty good.
5: Uh, so I'm surprised the movie held up as much as it did. It's cool. It's all filmed on location in the Scottish Highlands. Like I said, he is one of the the vilest villains in recent memory, I, I would say I don't disagree.
1: His character is like a flam, more flamboyant version of Jack Sparrow, but a lot right worse.
5: Yeah, and there's like such a a like so you see him in like the the dandyish, foppish clothes with the big you know frilly wig and so on, and he's got this real you know kind of like effeminate vibe to him. But then like whenever he takes the wig off, and he's like. You know, you can see, like, the punk kid from Britain, you know, is, like, still there under all that makeup and stuff. He's so, like, smarmy and, you know, sucking up to, you know, John Hurt and Brian Cox. You know, you want to talk about a a deep bench of supporting actors in this movie. Jessica Lange. Yeah, what a great cast in that movie. All I kept thinking about was the scene where he kills Eric Stoltz. It just brought me flashbacks of Pulp Fiction of Honey Bunny killing Lance the drug dealer. Um, which I just found was funny
1: yeah, watching that. It's a really unique role for him at that point in his career, too. I mean, this I think this is when he starts to hone in on his villain and how damn good he is at being a villain in movies. He's awesome. Yep. We know he gets Oscar nominated. He wins the BAFTA mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actor
5: award for it. Yep. But can we just talk about the Oscar nominees in the Best Supporting Actor category that year? For my money, like any one of these guys could have won that year. Spacey won, right? Spacey wins it for Usual Suspects. Uh, the other nominees are James Cromwell for playing the farmer Hoggett in Babe. <laughs> That'll do, pig. That'll do. You got Ed Harris for playing Gene Kranz, Mission Control director in Apollo 13. You got Brad Pitt for Twelve Monkeys. I hated um, that
4: movie. Go on.
5: I hate that movie too, but Pitt is awesome in it. He's the best. He's the only reason to watch that movie now, I think. And then you got Roth for. Rob Roy, and Spacey, like you said, wins it for Usual Suspects. Wow.
1: But right? I I feel like any of those guys could have won that Oscar that year. Thanks, Dan. No, thank you. Appreciate it, man. All right, so Largest Audience Gap, also 95, another Tarantino special, and that's Four Rooms, and James has it. With
2: this one, we're not going to have a problem about uh, awards.
1: (laughs) 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 This is
2: the Largest Audience Gap, and it's a gigantic gap. Audience 69% nice, liked this movie. Critics, 13% liked this movie. That is a gigantic gap. Wow. Four Rooms, dark comedy about a hotel bellhop that's played by Tim Roth, who's working on New Year's Eve by himself at a hotel in Hollywood. One of the most unique movies I've seen because it is written and directed by four different directors, each of which has a quarter of the movie that is their own short story about a guest or guests staying in one of four rooms that night. The only thing that connects those four rooms is Roth's bellhop character. The directors, uh, the ones that I know, are amazing, and the cast is amazing, but that's the only thing that's good about this movie. The four directors are Allison Anders, Alexander Rockwell, Robert Rodriguez, and Quentin Tarantino, and their stories are told in that order. The cast includes Roth, obviously, but he's paired with Antonio Banderas. Bruce Willis, Madonna, Marissa Tomei, Kathy Griffin. The first story is so horrifically bad that if I was to explain the plot to you right now, you'd be like, well, that's just inappropriate and clearly didn't happen.
0: (laughs) Um,
2: And I think it ruins the tone of the movie because there's one or two stories in there that's pretty good. But after the first one, you're like, I don't want to watch this anymore. The best story by far is Robert Rodriguez, uh, which I think is the third one. And it's about Antonio Banderas, who's paying Roth to babysit his kids. And his kids are, like, absurdly mature for their age. And they're, like, young kids. They're, like, seven and five. But they're just huge pieces of shit. They're doing intravenous drugs and smoking cigarettes and (laughs) chugging beer. And they find a dead body. Like, it goes so absurd that it's kind of funny. But the other parts of the movie, I think, went for the absurdity. And it just is uncomfortable. Like, the first story is about a seance of witches who need Roth's demon to finish their seance and like what an introduction to a movie you're like what the fuck am I watching <laughs> that's pretty relatable I don't know how yeah, to get what yeah, you happens that? <laughs> uh, and what sucks is like this movie's awful but Roth is also pretty awful if I don't in if I'm being honest he's playing like a bumbling idiot that's kind of like a mix of Mr. Bean but like with like a nervous twitch and <laughs> that's just not how I see him I see him as like this cool, hard-ass kind of tough guy, and he's playing like this whimsical kind of idiot who's like really passive, and it it just wasn't an enjoyable watch. I don't know how almost seventy percent of the people, and it's like fifty-five thousand reviews said it was Oof. good. I don't know how. It doesn't make any sense to me. The one thing I did find interesting though is that Roth kind of fell ass backwards into this role. It was originally going to be Steve Buscemi, and he couldn't do it, and they just kind of uh, Tarantino reached out to him and was like, "Hey." I like you. Do you want to try it? And he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? And like, he didn't even realize he was the main character. And I doubt he realized that it was going to be this bad of a movie.
4: <laughs> it sounds like he was playing Crispin Glover's character from Hot Tub Time Machine before he got his arm cut off. <laughs> <Jeez>. Dude,
2: like <laughs> I kind of appreciate them going wild with it, but like, it doesn't work. It's not entertaining. It's not funny. The only one that's kind of works is his character because it's these adorable little kids and they're just such pieces of shit and it makes it funny
0: Hmm.
1: it makes sense that you said that james because i saw an interview with roth that he he said it was roth and buscemi and they both said basically when quentin calls you and offers you a part you take it like or you try to negotiate a different part because good writing roles don't come along very often and quentin has this little pack of guys that he works with and so that's probably where he's just like okay steve can't do it i'll do it uh you just tell me where i need to be and what i need to do
2: exactly I think their relationship has shown that right you know they're getting wasted together getting roles and so if he's like hey you want to do this like sure I'll figure it out when
1: I get there he's like it'll lead to maybe a better role down the road and I'll just get the paycheck and then deal with it hope people forget about it until the Munsons talk about it in 2020 (laughs) 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 all right so sounds like a role that wasn't uh maybe a little bit of a stinker compared to his other stuff we've talked about
2: and that's okay
1: that's okay thanks James All right. We've got a long chunk before we hit largest credit gap in 2015. So we're talking 96 to 2014, almost 20 years of work. So we're going to buzz through these and hit some of the highlights. There's a lot more work than we're going to cover. We're just going to hit many of the the main uh, roles over the years. So first off not even a role he took. Tying into our Trejo episode, he actually turned down two roles in From Dust Till Dawn. Those roles were John Hawks' role and George Clooney's roles. He turned down both of them. Interesting. Another interesting turn in his career. 96, he's in Everyone Says I Love You, plays a character named Charles. As Craig had mentioned, 97, he's in Gridlocked, one of Tupac's last movies. While
0: well, they were filming it. Uh, Tupac brought Tim Roth over to Death Row Records, and they recorded <laughs> a couple tracks. And he jokingly said somewhere in a vault, there's a uh, rap with him and Tupac on there together that maybe someday will get released. I thought the visual of Tim Roth walking into Death Row Records in the 90s <laughs> with Tupac was pretty funny.
1: A short white Brit walking into Death Row. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite the sight. I'm sure somebody will release it in a couple of years when uh, they try to convince the world that Tupac's not dead.
2: Tim Roth uh, said that he used to give Tupac shit for showing up in a new car every day on set and eventually tupac gave it back to him and called him mr free stuff because he wouldn't pay for (laughs) anything and he would only (laughs) take the free food on set to eat
1: (laughs) cheap ass tim Roth. yeah he's like
2: don't worry about my cars he's like worry about your bills
4: that's funny (laughs) this sounds very financially savvy that's
1: true Hey, my man has said over and over again over his career that he doesn't like, he doesn't really want to dig into franchise films and things like that, which means the paychecks that he's doing for independent films, not that great. So yeah. my man is saving pennies where he can. He's pinching. Um, 98, he's in The Legend of 1900 as Novacento, and then he did his first and only directing job in the war zone in 1999. Um, and I saw the reviews. The reviews are pretty good for it. Yeah.
3: No, I was just reading the reviews, and I wish I had seen it, because it sounds yeah. pretty dark.
1: Well, it, it ties to his background. So this is when he revealed that he had been a victim of sexual abuse by his grandfather, wow. his paternal grandfather, when he was a kid. And wow. so a lot of the story Fuck. spawns from his own personal story.
0: It was him and his father,
1: yeah, victims oh. of
0: his grandfather. Oh. Yeah.
1: Well, good for him turning his his pain into art. It's, it's interesting. I was wondering why he hadn't directed since then, and you talked about like... You just don't sleep for months on end, and I just don't think he's interested in doing that again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: 2000, we see lucky numbers. The, the bomberoo that Craig talked about from the box office Ooh. standpoint with uh, Bruce Willis. Was it Bruce Willis or Travol- Travolta, right?
0: John Travolta. Yeah. Travolta.
1: The shitty actors are getting mixed up. Sorry. Hey, I'm kidding, guys. <laughs> I'm kidding. Jokes, guys. Also, 2000, he's in Vatel as Marquise. I just marked this because this was his first time working alongside Uma Thurman, who we worked with later. And we'll talk about that one a little bit with Craig's review. And then 2001, he plays Thade in Planet of the Apes, who is just a, I think he's an excellent villain in that movie. The movie, maybe not so much, but he is a villain. Fantastic. I think
2: he, he's
3: the best part. I couldn't tell you the last time I saw this fucking movie. The rebooted ones are much better.
1: Yeah. Oh, not even close. Agreed. Oh, yeah. A, I don't even think it's fair to compare those. Did Wahlberg
4: end up making out with a monkey in this one? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He kisses a monkey. At That's the, end. the only thing worth checking out in this movie. <laughs> or Jay, Jay, Jay and Silent
1: Bob making fun of it. I would contend with my money that he is the best part of the movie. I agree. That his villain role is excellent. The mannerisms that it required to do that. I know in his interviews he talked about um, his stunt double was a Cirque du Soleil actor. Mm -hmm. And he just talked about how he and his stunt double just have fun trying different stuff out, and like, hey, can you like launch me fifty feet in the air through this window? And they're like, screw it, let's go, let's do it. It's an interesting role. The movie's not great, but Burton had a different vision for it that the studio did not allow.
4: I see your note that he turned down the role of Snape, and that's fantastic. Like that shouldn't be anybody but Rickman. So
5: how was how
1: was Rickman not the first choice? I don't know for that role. By the way, I don't know. It's crazy. So Roth agreed to it initially, and then he agreed to Planet of the Apes. He's like, I want to go make a monkey movie. That's
4: exactly how that went. That's what he said. (laughs) Literally. I want to make a monkey movie. He's
1: like, I'm going to go make a monkey movie. And apparently the Harry Potter people were going to let him fly back and forth between the US and the UK to do both. But he did it a couple times like in early production, and he was like, yeah, I just can't physically do this. So... He stuck with Planet of the Apes because he could see how big Harry Potter was going to be. And although his kids wanted him to do it, because he read it to his kids, he's like, I don't want to get franchised and get stuck into just having to do this for 15 years. I don't like money. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He probably got to the point where it didn't matter anymore, where he's so rich, he's like, "Uh, whatever.
1: I don't know, man. When he talks this stuff, he didn't make much money from his roles.
2: Yeah. Up to this point, he probably had made shit. I have some spicy Planet of the Apes tidbits. Ooh. So Roth is very outspoken about uh, supporting gun control and criticizing the NRA. Mm -hmm. And at the time of filming this, Charlton Heston, famous for Planet of the Apes, was the president Mm -hmm. of the NRA. Gun nut. Yep. And Roth said he was able to keep things professional, but he knew he'd be required to do a scene along Heston And he was quoted saying, I feel very strongly about that monster. I made my feelings clear on set, got myself in makeup, put my gear on, including rubber hands so I wouldn't be infected if I touched him and went in, did my scene and promptly left. I was like, that is (laughs) the harshest I've (laughs) ever heard someone talk about another actor. (laughs) The other funny uh, tidbit from Planet of the Apes is um, he was asked to explain the ending and he goes, I can't explain it. I've seen it twice and I don't understand anything. That's
1: awesome. (laughs) Not surprising. 2001, he's an invincible, plays a character named Herschel, another Nazi Germany plot there. And that's also uh, one of Warner Herzog's films.
3: I thought that was the Mark Wahlberg. I was going to say, I thought that's the movie where he tried out for the (laughs) Eagles in the (laughs) park. No,
1: no football in this one. Just, Just Nazis, you
3: know. No, that's the garbage picking, field goal
1: kicking.
4: Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, Sunny in Philadelphia episodes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Beautiful Country, two thousand four. One of the movies I watched of his that I actually thought was pretty good. Um, he plays a captain who's transporting some uh, some folks from Vietnam to the states, and he's pretty good in that role. It's a it's only in the second act that he's in, but he's he's pretty solid in that movie, and that's good. That movie's got some emotional punch to it. Um, Nick Nolte plays the main dad character in that one. Sea Wolf, two thousand five, two part miniseries. He plays a character named Death Larson. Can you guys imagine that he's a villain in this two part miniseries with the name of Death Larson? Crazy. <laughs> I just thought it was Swedish. <laughs> it's a family name. <laughs> it's both. It's all three. It's family now. Who knows? Um, he yeah. He plays a heavy in there with a cane and a big old uh, scar across his face. 2007 he's in youth without youth um one of francis ford coppola's films and then also oh seven he's in funny games as george a shot for shot remake of a previous role
3: shot for shot remake of a fucked up movie i don't know why they would do that but he's good in it but it's it's one of those things where it's like what
1: was
0: the point of this
1: to introduce it to a new generation i guess <laughs> yeah maybe and that was also his first time acting alongside naomi watts who he crosses paths with later in his career as well 2008. We mentioned earlier, he's in the Incredible Hulk. Plays Emil Blonsky, who I believe also known as the Abomination. It's actually not that bad.
4: Oh, I thought I thought that was Rigby talking for a second. I was like, I was me like, a
1: fucking break, Rigby. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> of all the of all the movies he watched, you're including this one. In it. Yeah. Yeah, he, he
1: said he said he did this one for his kids. His kids really wanted to do it. So uh, yeah, I
4: will I will agree with Dan. This one really isn't that bad. But that's like saying you're the best player on the Jets.
5: There
1: you go. Oh, that's uncalled for.
5: This slow blows. He's the Frank Gore yeah, of that movie. Oh, my God. Why are you guys doing
0: this?
2: I
4: can't <laughs> he, wait to quote actually, that. He actually, his character actually tweets. looks, it's my new Twitter uh, avatar <laughs> is Abomination. Yep. And it is it is like a uh, Ninja Turtle, you know, Frank Gore.
2: Uh. <laughs> it's just kind of corny. I rewatched it. It's, it's cheesy. It's better than the Eric Bana one. Yeah, because the Eric Bana one had a, uh, that Ang Lee experience where yeah. it's just so like there's doves and it's dream sequences and yeah. what's the deeper meaning. I was like, I just want to see this guy smash shit. Yeah. Like, that's the only reason I'm watching this movie.
4: Him playing the heavy. It, I don't, I don't, I guess I just don't really care for him as a heavy and especially him. I granted he turns into abomination, which is, you know, because of gamma radiation, all that shit. But Tim Roth's 57 seven, there's nothing
0: intimidating <laughs> about him cgi ass <laughs> by the
4: way.
2: steroids like hulk steroids very scary yeah. yeah
4: whatever that's like mark Wahlberg after when he was on pain and gain <laughs> you know he's like too. seven two
2: i'm convinced both guys you just named could kick the shit out of you <laughs>
4: you know what i'd let them
1: you know what? I'd,
4: I'd sue their ass you're going to school for free
1: <laughs> there you go that's so fucking good so 2009 hits, and Tim Timmy Roth decides to start doing some TV. And he said he wanted to cross something off the bucket list. He's, he's always done movies up until this point, a few smaller TV shows. But he uh, went into his character and lied to me as Dr. Cal Lightman. And that show went for, like, I don't know, 30-some episodes, maybe 50-some episodes over two and a half, three years. Yeah, I think it was in
0: the 50s. Yeah. That was a really interesting show. It was in that era where a lot of these sitcoms were using, like, very intelligent and, like, you know, like intellectual and academic ways of solving crimes. Mm -hmm. And this one was a little bit different in that it just focused on the one area of like the language of lying. And it was really interesting because they would show somebody, they would have a story built in and then they would say how they knew that person was lying. And then every time they went to a commercial, they would have a still frame of somebody in a public arena that actually got caught lying. And they would show the same face, the same body language. It's it's pretty interesting.
2: It was based on actual science too, so they didn't just make it up for the mm-hmm. show. Was whether or not the science was you know peer reviewed and up, you know <laughs> agreed upon, yeah, yeah. is a <clears throat> is another thing entirely. So I watched a few episodes of the show, and it's like your classic TV show where the overall plot doesn't matter. There's a formula to each episode, and yeah, you just cool. kind of turn your brain off and it's enjoy like an SVU,
1: it. Like SVU, right? You right, exactly. Exactly.
2: One thing I did find out though is that Roth made. Quarter of a million dollars per episode, and he said it was by far the most money he's ever made on a Oh, podcast. wow! It was a pretty popular show at that time. Fuck that TV money, man.
3: <laughs> he, he was
2: so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> he was blown away. He's like, I don't know what they're doing at Fox, but you know, they're gonna pay me 250k an episode. I'm in, let's do this
0: forever. Yeah.
1: Well, if you're at home, Jeez. you can do the math. He did over 50 episodes, and uh, just let us know what that means for his uh, t- 2009 to t- 2012 bank account. Yeah,
4: they ran the numbers. He
1: was like, there's a big difference
4: between winging it and seeing what happens. So let's, let's see what happens.
1: <laughs> Take that number, then cut it in half for taxes, and you, you'll end up with the end result there.
0: Maybe this was Fox's answer to ABC's numbers. Yeah, solving everything with math. In this one, they're just solving everything with lying body language.
1: 2010 is a cool moment in his career because he uh, he ends up on the album cover for a band called Manic Street Preachers and the album is called Postcards from a Young Man and it's a picture of him like with a camera and so you know maybe he had that on his bucket list if not cool little moment for his career and then 2012 he's in uh, Arbitrage as Detective Michael Breyer, and I know Rigby likes this movie and can agree that I think he's a terror he's a good detective but a terrible detective
3: the movie sells him as like this hard-nosed detective who will go stop at nothing to get to the truth and then he fucking sells him out in the end
1: (laughs) He turn it turns out he uh he lied about fucking everything
3: it turns out he just like he's just not good at his job and Mm -hmm. so the movie kind of portrays him totally differently for the first 90 percent of it and then the last 10 he's just a bumbling (laughs) bumbling detective who can't tie his shoes basically
1: you realize he had nothing on richard gear but he uh He certainly tried. He certainly tried. Uh, it's a good little movie, though. Good little flick.
3: Yeah, it's good.
1: Same thing. 2012. There's a, a movie called Bro. He plays a character named Archie, a dad figure in the movie. I say of the movies I've, the roles I've seen of his, it's one of the few where I see some serious emotional depth from him. Where he actually like, he's crying in the role with his daughter. You don't see that much in his career. So it's a decent little flick. It's in like the 60s and 70s uh, on Rotten Tomatoes for audiences and and uh, critics. So decent one to check out if you get a chance. 2012, he's in The Liability, another decent little flick with Jack O'Connell. And then 2014, he's in Grace of Monaco. He plays Prince Rainier, alongside Nicole Kidman. Have any of you guys seen this movie?
4: Why would I have seen this movie?
1: No, but I love Grace Kelly. It's got terrible, terrible reviews. Um, He's not great. And the the movie just got destroyed. 2014 is not a really good year. I guess the back end of 2014 is good. um, Because we've got United Passions, which we mentioned earlier. He plays Sepp Blatter. In uh, he has since apologized for being in the movie and said he did it for the paycheck.
4: Oh, so it is about money.
1: <laughs> in this case, he said he one of his kids was going to college, so he's like, I just did it for the paycheck.
2: It's a little bit about money, and I made over five hundred and fifty k last year. <laughs> <laughs> Rock hard ass, drive Range Rover, bro. Uh, I haven't had a carb since two thousand and
1: four. <laughs> united passions is about fifa and it came out right before the whole fifa corruption scandal hit and he plays sepp blatter who is supposed to be who's at least portrayed in the movie as this like genius with money and ter- makes him out to be the kind of like a noble character and then it turns out he's a big old piece of shit yeah and so the whole movie's just it is straight propaganda it has a one on metacritic one good
3: cast too. Sam Neill yeah. and Gerard Depardieu, or however you say his name.
1: Mm-hmm. Those are
3: like two really good foreign actors. That's sad. Yeah. Subbladder, one of the like top
4: ten worst names ever.
5: Oh, seriously, <laughs> fucking awful. Can I share James- just some of the rev- what some of the reviews say about this movie because they are Please. hilarious. Absolutely. The Daily Mirror calls it unintentional comedy gold, <laughs> <laughs> and they say. Set bladder his face Shining like a waxed buttock Throughout the film (laughs) Is made to Be the hero of uh, Anti-corruption Which Which is hilarious hilarious, Oh boy What else is said A cringeworthy self-aggrandizing affair Astonishingly crass uh, And Tim Roth is quoted as saying This is a role that will have my father Turning in his grave
1: <laughs> yep, and apparently everyone on set kind of knew and were trying to take shots at it the whole time, but they were already too far in to turn turn away <laughs> at that point.
0: Hey, doing some quick math, this movie probably sold you know in the neighborhood of sixty tickets in the box the box office. Man, Christ.
1: I wasn't going to watch it, but I saw how bad the reviews were, and I was like, I got to go watch this. It's available on Tubi if, if anybody listening wants to journey down that path. It's it's something. There
2: are numerous documentaries on the history of FIFA, and I watched one of them, and pretty much from the invention of the FIFA Association, uh, it's been corrupt. So that's from World War II. We're talking like a good, just about to reach 100 years of corruption. So that's pretty funny.
1: You wouldn't get that from the movie whatsoever sure. you'd think uh, it's a, a fantastic organization who just had some some rough patches from a financial standpoint
2: so <laughs> no yeah if you watch any doc any like historic documentary it's all like yeah, they've never really figured out finances from the jump uh, when the Olympics weren't uh, hosting soccer anymore because of the Nazis. They just had to come up with another place they could play soccer, and they just went to the highest bidder, and that's how it started. So imagine where they are now where there's billions upon billions of dollars involved. Yeah,
1: the movie ends yeah. on the South Africa decision, which ends up being the focal point of a lot of the corruption uh, in real life, so it's that's the, the most ironic part of it. Good fun. Like I said, his career... It jumps up a little bit at the end of 2014 when he's in Selma as governor. George Wallace, quite the racist.
4: Great movie. Movie's great, but yeah. he's a piece of shit.
1: <laughs> he's a big old piece of shit.
4: <laughs> he's supposed to be, though, so like he does a really yeah. good job of being that piece of shit. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. enraging.
2: Yeah,
1: he's good in that role. And then finally, 2014, he's in an episode of Robot Chicken. Any of you guys Robot Chicken fans?
4: I've seen plenty of Robot Chicken. Yeah, man. All right, that's, that's one of those shows where everybody's eventually in an episode of Robot mm-hmm. Chicken.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm. He he plays a beanie baby pimp in the episode where he's (laughs) trying to sell beanie babies and realizes they ain't worth shit. So he like attaches them to his jacket, and then this woman thinks he's a pimp. So then he starts running hoes with his beanie baby jacket. It's really funny. Say
0: no more, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: and he plays doctor who in the same episode but that one's not as that is not as fun as the beanie baby pimp side and that takes us to 2015's largest critic app and that's uh 600 miles and warren's got it yeah who who ended up watching this one i did what'd you think i liked it it's dark it's a little slow but for a short movie and a small story i thought it had good payoff
4: and what did what did i say in our text thread movie fucking rocks And I lied. This movie fucking blows. (laughs) So this movie was a 94 critic, 40 audience. It's a disparity of 54. That's a huge gap. Yeah. Uh, This movie is Sicario with CTE. It's not good at all. Nothing about it, seriously. Sicario rocks. Sicario's great. If you took out the parts where it's just driving in cars without dialogue or the main character crying alone in a kitchen, the movie's about 30 minutes long. Roth plays a dumb character who's not good at his job as an ATF agent. There's that quote that yeah, if you have enough monkeys in a room with typewriters, you'll eventually get Shakespeare. <laughs> Well, you'll also get this. While the monkeys are typing, one of them will take a shit, and then they'll all proceed (laughs) to throw this movie at each other for the next 85 minutes.
1: (laughs) Man, Warren did like it, huh? No. (laughs) I'm going to say he's on the bottom of the gap, closer to the 40 side.
2: Oh, well, let him finish. Hold on.
4: I'd say it's below a 40. Oh, I
3: have a headache from laughing so hard. Sorry.
4: I I went through, because they're over 30... Critic reviews on on, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, and I went through to read them. And so movies with critic reviews like this, a 94. That's um, so crazy. Yeah. Movies with critic reviews reviews like this are what make me absolutely despise people with the title critic. (laughs) So I've got three of them, and I'm going to read them off. 600 Miles plays with the viewer's expectations, just reminds us that arms trafficking isn't heroic or epic. And that violence is born because of the inequities of capitalist system within the United States. That may be true, but that's not what this movie is about. So, like, get the fuck out of here. This isn't what the movie is. A Mexican road movie that feels like a Belgian thriller. What the fuck does that even (laughs)
1: mean? I'm Googling Belgian thrillers right now. Yeah, here's the last one. Arnulfo
4: and Hanks' relationship evokes a relationship between Mexico and the U.S. and Ripstein's eloquent discourse about how these two countries rely on each other. Fell oh, asleep during that. Whoever comes up with that is a synopsis for this movie. Probably wrote this one too. See if you can guess what movie this is. A depressed, widowed father teams up with a mentally challenged female as they charge or as they search for his kidnapped, disabled son.
2: That's Finding Nemo. Finding that's Nemo. Finding Nemo. Yeah. yeah that's finding <laughs> <evil>. Yep.
4: <laughs> So seriously, like, who the fuck watches this movie and comes up with that? Is like, oh, this is my takeaway: is talking about U.S. Mexico relations, and you know, these two characters play the two. Yeah. No,
2: come on. What man. Nemo said about mental health, really? You know, yeah. deep stuff.
4: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this movie wasn't good. There were initially, like, when the kid was walking around the gun store, I was like, this is a statement on how absolutely easy it is to get a gun in the U.S. Not a hard thing mm-hmm. whatsoever. I really did not like the 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 lead in this. I thought he was terrible. It was like the director the director was like, okay, you're a young kid who just learned how to say every cuss word in Spanish. So all you hear is pendejo, a pinocha, a puta madre, like all this shit. And I I watched this movie with (laughs) subtitles because I now watch every movie with subtitles because I usually have a, a, a kid around and I'm not gonna have all these things up. So when Amazon Prime is playing a movie with subtitles, it can't do it. It plays the subtitles over the subtitles in the movie. Yeah, yeah.
1: It doubles.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Not to say that Mm -hmm. that hurt this movie because I I didn't have to pay as much. I actually know a decent amount of Spanish. I can listen to them talk in Spanish and know what they're saying, but... It's not good. I I am you know, Hickman. You, you like it that's fine, but you know, fuck this movie.
1: I think I gave it like a 55-60. I was in the sl- slightly above the 40, but I'm not in the no- I'm not 94. Like, yeah, don't.
4: that's about 50-55 too high.
1: <laughs> it's well, it's just like I
4: you'll never ever ever watch this movie again and I would never ever 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 recommend anybody watch this movie
1: that's all the people need to know
4: there's nothing to it
1: well this is what you really came for i looked up belgian thrillers and uh this is what i found so the highest rated one is called undercover it's a 50 minute tv show Uh, i've got no man's land miss peregrine's home for peculiar children and then you've got climax which is a Gaspar no film and the neon demon so i don't know what those all have in common but those are belgian thrillers
2: that's also the website that uh, Rigby is going to do our top 10 performances from. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, Tintin
4: is Belgian, and so I imagine like his TV show its like action-adventure thriller. So that's probably the best thing to come out of Belgium, uh, film-wise.
1: Oh, I guess we'll find out. Thanks, Mort. Sure. All right. Um, 2015, he's in Chronic, also in Hardcore Henry.
4: Love that movie. A lot of people have seen that movie and like couldn't get past the first five or ten minutes because of motion sickness. If you were to take all the fight scenes together, it's it's the most creative cinematography like yeah, ever. Yeah. And and the last super cool. There's a five to like seven-minute fight scene starting about hour one one fifteen that is probably the coolest fight scene in the world with some of the best music. And it's don't stop me now by queen when he injects himself with adrenaline. Oh my God.
1: Yep.
0: That's right.
4: And just goes,
1: mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And then also Mr. Right. 2015, uh, he plays Hopper, an FBI agent hunting down uh, Sam Rockwell's character.
0: I really enjoyed this movie. I was, uh, I was surprised at how poorly it was rated by fans, uh, critics. I get three main characters, Ross, Sam Rockwell, and Anna Kendrick. I mean, those guys were cast almost perfectly for their roles. And so I was, I, I, I it's an enjoyable movie. Is it a great movie? You know, probably not, but I'll watch it anytime it's on.
1: And then 2015 also brought us uh, what somebody wrote in the, the show notes, their least favorite Tarantino, and that's the Hateful Eight. He plays Oswaldo. Yeah, that was me. It's <laughs> a
5: rough one. I don't think it's a hot take. No, it's, it's not a, at all. It's like
1: watching a play kind of.
5: Yeah, it is. A, it's a solid 45, 50 minutes too long. Yeah. For I mean, it's it's beautiful to look at in the opening scenes. It's really cool yeah. looking, and you think it's gonna I don't know get some you know get something going. That's not where it ends up, and it's just it's just a tough sit. And I think
1: it's it's a it's a tough hang for two hours and forty eight minutes. Do you guys know about the ending
5: when
4: it got leaked?
1: Yeah, I got leaked. Mm. So I don't. We never got the real ending. They did a mm-hmm. a script read with all the actors of the original ending.
4: If it weren't for Christoph Waltz being in Django, he would have been in this role and played that character and it would have been perfect. Yeah. But this just feels like him trying to do that role and it sucks. It's just, It feels like the exact same character throughout a majority of the movie where he's this very eloquent speaking guy and he's trying to be this proper gentleman and everything. But it's just it's just annoying. And that was my big beef with him in this movie. Because he, he was a considerable character in it, for sure.
1: He is. Oh, yeah. On the same pace with everybody else. I'm not going to disagree with you on that front. So I'm, I'm cool to let it live. And we can keep moving. 2017, he joined the cast of Twin Peaks as Gary Hutch Hutchins, which is a David Lynch project. So another big-time director from a TV show standpoint. And then another television show pretty prominent in Tin Star plays a character named Jim Worth based on research I saw, it was a lot more improvising than I think he was used to in a lot of his other roles. Yeah. Especially the Tarantino side, who is very much like, read what's on the fucking page. Oh, well, and that takes us to 2018's lowest critic score, and that's The Con Is On, and Craig's got it.
0: Boys, this took me four viewings to get through it. <laughs> nice. Two times I fell asleep, and the other two times I lost interest, so bear with me here. That's how you know it's good. <laughs> yeah, right. I watched it four times. It's so good. Count is on. This is a 2018 heist comedy starring Tim Roth and Uma Thurman. Uh, they're a completely dysfunctional couple who are constantly get, getting into trouble and then getting into more trouble when they try to get themselves out of trouble. They end up in hot water during the opening scene of the movie when Uma Thurman takes some, um, just a bizarre scene. She, she, There's a drug deal with a nun and instead of taking that money and bringing it back to who she needs to give it to, she gambles it away and loses all of it. And so with drug dealers and other people on their tails, her and her husband, Tim Roth, flee to L.A. where they plot to steal a ring from Tim Roth's ex-wife to get the money back. Uma Thurman plays a master thief and a shitty gambler. It was very odd seeing Uma Thurman playing a role with an English accent. And then uh, Tim Roth plays a cunning con man with clear chemical abuse issues.
4: Did he have an accent? He did. He, well, I guess it depends on how you
0: look at it, right? He had his
4: accent. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I, I wasn't sure if they were playing an English couple, like an American couple, and he was American, and she was English. <laughs> like <laughs> flipping it. and That would have no, been that's... stupid.
0: Okay, go on. Or, or maybe it would have made it better. I don't know. That might have been a creative <laughs> opportunity to, to keep me interested. Uh, The rest of the movie is littered with these eccentric characters and performers of Hot Tub Time Machine fame. Kristen Glover's in it. Mm -hmm. Sophia Vergara, Maggie Q, Alice Eve, Stephen Fry, and Parker Posey. Those guys compile the the main core of the movie. Ralph delivers the role you'd expect from him. He's witting, convincing, charming, and he's drunk or high a lot of the movie. It's kind of going for a Get Shorty vibe. With the story centering around Tim Roth and, and Uma Thurman's characters and, and what they're up to, it just missed it. It was it's not a very good movie, and I will not be watching it again for a fifth time. <laughs> but I encourage <laughs> I encourage James and Rigby to go ahead and watch it. Oh, thank you! Thanks for the recommendation.
4: <laughs> this movie sounds awesome. I'm gonna have to give it a shot.
2: Sorry, I can't. I'm busy that day. It's all right. <laughs> it's a great
4: great cast for like a. Uh, a different type of movie except for this one correct
1: if you keep your expectations low warren it's probably an okay film experience
4: my expectations pretty damn low there
1: you go (laughs) (laughs) it's in the name lowest critic score so easy peasy 2018 to 2019 just kind of running out his career um he's in loose in 2019 uh as peter edgar he plays a father character in there in a movie that i think is pretty good i think james you said you've seen it pretty solid little flick and then he was supposed to be in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, got his scenes cut. Mm-hmm. I think it was a scene. It might have just been one scene. He played, what, Margot's hairdresser or something like that? It's her hairdresser's butler. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, wow. It seems slightly inconsequential to the uh, the plot, so I see why they cut it.
3: I can't wait for the director's cut of that movie, because first of all, I love that movie, and there's a lot of famous actors that got scenes cut from there, yeah. like Marsden, yeah. like Tim Roth.
1: Oh, Marsden um, had the scenes cut from that, too? Yeah, yeah he was Burt Reynolds.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Must be
4: right. Burt
1: Reynolds. Or something. Uh, <laughs> man, yeah, that'd be a fun one. Um, so yeah, he's sticking with the Tarantino, and maybe next time he won't get cut on the next, uh, I guess the final Tarantino film, right? He said he's only doing one more. And then uh, lastly, we've got the Song of Names played a character named Martin in that one and it came out in twenty nineteen and it, another storyline around the Holocaust and, and Nazi Germany and The Song of Names is a song that takes five days to sing and it's a remembrance of all of the names of all the the Jews who died in the Holocaust in the concentration camps. And so it's a story about that. Mixed reviews, but uh yeah, he's okay in it. Not great. Not terrible, and that gets us to uh, top performances. Rigby, what do you got for us?
3: So this is from ComingSoon.net, the the original ranking list, the ten best Tim Roth. Oh yeah, TV TV and film roles. ComingSoon.net is actually a fantastic movie yeah, website. I remember
5: I remember <laughs> Warren
3: Warren saying that he uh, he goes to it a lot. So. So if anybody wants to guess this is TV, it's not in chronolog or it's not in um, numerical order either. So it's just 10 best. What was the time period? So twi- like Twin Peaks is f- I just gave one away, but Twin Peaks is on here. That's from 2017-2018. So Twin Peaks dibs.
2: <laughs> Good job, Warren. Good job.
3: Uh, you killed res- it,
0: Warren.
2: Reservoir Dogs
3: obviously. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
4: Rob,
0: Rob Roy. Roy. Yeah. Uh,
3: Rob Roy is surprisingly not on That's here. Whoa. <laughs> this is yeah. That.
4: I haven't yeah. seen Rob Roy either,
1: but I probably would have put it on a list.
3: <laughs> I know he was nominated for yeah, it. Yeah, so it's I'm crazy surprised. he's
1: not on there. Give me yeah. a Ro- Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes. Oh, there you go.
0: Four rooms. I'm going to throw one out we didn't talk about Hoodlum, Dutch Schultz. No. That's
3: true. Dang. One on here that we did not discuss, I believe. I could hmm. be, I may have missed it if we did, but is, if we is, did, it was just a mention.
1: Is Made in Britain on there?
3: Yes, that is on there. Thanks. What about uh, Lie to Me? No, Lie to Me is not on here. Hmm. Selma. Selma, yep. Heart of Darkness. Nope.
5: Pulp Fiction. All right, I'm fucking Pulp dumb. Fiction,
2: yep. Oh, I'm three. Let's go.
5: Seriously, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> He's in Pulp Fiction for
1: six minutes. I know.
2: <laughs> I know. It's riveting six minutes. Riveting? How about
1: United Passions? <laughs> oh. Um, historical um, accuracy. Yes, please.
3: <laughs>
0: Unfortunately, that
3: did not make the cut. Oh, Although, I, I know you wanted it to, Kyle. Please tell me his role Roland the
4: Hulk is in there.
3: Yeah, Hulk. Uh, No.
0: Planet of the Apes.
3: Nope. Oh wow. Oh damn. I think you just got to tell us now.
1: Yeah. All right. So
3: I think the ones that we miss, unfortunately, the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover is in here.
1: Well, there you go.
3: Did we talk about the Legend of 1900? I mentioned it. You did mention it. Okay. Yeah. yeah, That's one. It had had good reviews. That's the reason I mentioned it. The Hateful Eight is also in here. (laughs) Wow. And I think the only one that you guys didn't
1: guess is the hit. Okay. I mean, that's, that was oh. a big one early for him.
3: So, comingsoon.net, coming
1: through in the clutch. Oh, there again. we go. All right. Thanks, Rugby. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the Munson meter. The way this works, we rate every actor on a scale of 0 to 100 on a variety of criteria and a little, you know, whatever else matters to us. And those things could include longevity, project choice, their pop culture impact, range, their awards footprint, if they have other talents off the screen, personal life, comedic chops, and box office. And then, you know, if, if they like the same sports team as you, who knows? So we'll start with James.
2: Tim's been in the game for a long time. He's at home playing dramatic roles, specifically as a bad guy. Um, he's won some awards and been nominated for an Academy Award. He's kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. Uh, what I knock him for is his lack of name recognition.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, it's a simple name. That doesn't help, but also he's never really playing a leading role. Like He's done a few leading roles, but he's not the main draw. However, what skyrockets him on uh, his score on my scale is his personal life, what he's overcome to be where he is, and kind of what I've learned about him preparing for this podcast. Telling Charlton Heston to fuck off while you're dressed up as a monkey is goddamn (laughs) (laughs) like That takes balls, and I respect it so much. He... Overcame being abused as a child, being beaten on a consistent basis, and growing up in a tough neighborhood to be as successful as he is. That's inspiring. However, what scored him high on my scale is that I learned that he actually grew up in uh, Dulwich, which is in South London. And it's a place that also happens to be where I participated in a work-study program for about four months in college while interning for Dulwich Hamlet FC, the local soccer team. Sweet. Similar to Tim, I also had a run-in with Nazi skinheads in a bar at that town, (laughs) and I can confidently go out on a limb and say I agree with Tim's beliefs. Fuck Nazis. So Tim gets an (laughs) anti-Nazi boost on my Munson scale, and I'm going to give him a 77. (laughs)
1: That's <laughs> so good. <laughs> case All right, Craig, you're up.
0: Well, this is a uh, tough rate for me. He's in some of my favorite movies of all time and is on the short call list for Tarantino, who is one of my favorite directors and writers, probably more writer of all time. I think he's an actor who likes to do different roles, projects, and mediums. One of the things we didn't talk about is a lot of times in between his movie roles, he tries to pick up some other radio shows or broadcast or, or small parts in TV shows just to kind of. See what that's like. But regardless of the medium, I think he's a good storyteller as an actor. He can play a pretty wide range of roles. Although I do agree with you, James. I don't know that he's been a, a lead in a lot of diverse roles. And, and I'd like to see that. I, I do think he's a known name amongst hardcore movie fans. But I don't think he's well known uh, with the recreational film fans. And so that hurts his name recognition. Middle of the road compared to our, all of our other actors and popularity, critic and fan rankings, and box office. And he has got a scattered but pretty well-populated award footprint with a lot of regional awards. But I think he's an actor that other performers and directors like to work with, and I think that's really important to me. So with that being said, I'm going to give him a 76.
1: All right. I'll jump in. Uh, James said most of what I wanted to, so I'm not going to regurgitate that. The two points I'll make is... I think his range is limited. I don't think he plays terribly complicated roles in most of his performances. He's good at being a villain. He's good at being in period pieces. Um, But anything that requires a lot of, I don't know, just like a challenging approach and complicated and emotionally deep, I just haven't seen a lot of that. So I got to give him a knock there. And I just appreciate his affinity for independent film and the fact that he doesn't want to just do blockbusters. He's found other ways to make money. And he's a talented guy. He's done other stuff. He's directed, and I, I just respect his, his honesty and transparency. So my score is a little bit lower than you guys. I'm only going to give him a 69. All right, Dan, Guess Munson. No, I
5: would echo a lot of what uh, has already been said. I love this guy. I've loved him since I first saw Reservoir Dogs for a drama class in college. I had to give a speech And uh, the speech I chose was the one that he memorizes in uh, Reservoir Dogs, the uh, the commode story. That's awesome. uh, To blend in. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, I've always I've loved him since then. Way back when you would have called him like a journeyman character actor. You know what I mean? Like, he just, Mm -hmm. you know, he's not flashy. He does a little bit of everything. You know, he can disappear into certain roles. He's got the Oscar nomination. He's got the BAFTA. He's got you know a lot of you know prestigious things on his resume. So I go you know I'm going 78 yeah, for him because uh, you know so he's he made he's made an impression on me for you know going on 25 years now, and uh, um, I just I respect him. And doing this deep dive into his uh, personal life and his work uh, makes me respect him even more. Shape the
1: film teacher that is Dan Craig. Very grateful for that.
4: All right, Warren. The longevity's there the initial awards uh i mean they were they were there i i wish i had seen rob roy just to say that that was like the the pinnacle in my opinion based off what i've heard that's kind of like his his you know the apex of what he's done individually in a role and while he's in a ton of movies that i i either really like or like am quite fond of i just don't really care for him per se in the movies um and th- that's just a part of it like there are tons of people who are like that and you know that's just what it is all that said like he you know the the name recognition everything like i think there was a, a, a probably until maybe five years ago i thought him and uh i thought he went on a really bad bender sometime and that was where like peter Stormare came from um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I th- I think that I was confused that they were separate people for a long time. He's just, he's just kind of like white noise in a lot of movies. He's he's got roles that you know progress the plot for me, but I just I don't really care for him all that much. Um, it is very. Consistent with what he does, but
3: it's just not that flashy to me. So I'm going to give him a 66. Six.
1: All right, Rigby, round us out. Uh,
3: yeah, you guys hit it all. Um, he's in. Craig mentioned that he's in some of my favorite movies. I love Tarantino, and I love Love Reservoir Dogs. Um, Pulp Fiction's not my favorite, but it's still, you know, I, I I recognize the role and I recognize the power that it has in in you know people's favorite movie lists and all that stuff. The uh, longevity is there. Uh, I think it says something to. To have your first role be um, was that was the one he was nominated for the BAFTA or was that the hit? Yeah, so That's the, one the one he hit. Ever hit. Yeah. So that yeah, hit. but but I think Made in Britain he was the lead role in his first movie, and I think mm-hmm. his story about how he got it is really cool. He's obviously been around some. He's uh, acted with some some pretty powerful some powerful dudes in the industry which is saying something and <laughs> held his own but yeah like you said kyle you know the diversity of his roles isn't really there to give him a high enough score i don't think so i'm gonna give him a 75
1: all right warren what do we got for an average
4: that gives tim roth a uh, 73.5 which puts him at 10th in between christina applegate and Jimon hansu wow oh,
1: that crack. is very fair <laughs> cracking the top 10 well, I know one thing. That's that's moved uh, our boy Chris O'Dowd down to number twenty-five. Oh, yeah.
3: Ouch, <laughs> man! <laughs>
1: you know, it's something. So there you go, uh, Dan. You're part on the of the list. top ten, and you're part of the dead last. So something to take home and write about. That's awesome. Yeah, Warren, what has he got coming?
4: So he's got quite a few things that are on the docket. Um, he's got a, uh, a movie called The Jesuit. I don't really know much about it. He's in uh, Bergman Island, uh, another thing that's in post-production. Uh, and a couple other movies, three other movies called The Misfits, Punch, and Do- uh, Dolly Land. But uh, he's been announced to be in the TV series for She, as a part of... Uh, marvel's new release so he could be playing very well uh, reprising his role as abomination
1: i mean everybody else is reprising their role from previous marvel films so wouldn't be surprised
4: it's just this one by the time it comes out he's gonna be like 20 years older and so (laughs) he'll probably look like an abomination he won't need the makeup (laughs) they'll get peter stormare to play him 20 years older
1: (laughs) so we got five actors we're throwing on the wheel uh, for episode 26 those five are Derek Luke, Emma Thompson, Joe Pantoliano, Naomi Harris, and Jason Siegel. What do we like? What do we dislike?
3: Jason Siegel.
4: Yeah, either Siegel or Emma Thompson.
3: I like Emma Thompson. Joey
4: Pants. Joey Pants, yeah. Yeah, Joey. Joey Pants is fine, but man, I don't know if I can watch a shitload of his movies, man. He gets yes. so fucking annoying. You,
1: you could watch a lot of bad boys and use that to to chase away the shit movies
4: dude just watch him watch him in the sopranos man yeah. it's fucking
3: rough <laughs> yeah he is <laughs> he's, he's, he's incredible he's, at what he does but man fuck that character <laughs> ralphie's one of my favorite sopranos characters ever but cifaretto he's so
2: unbearable on purpose
4: yeah 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 that's that's the thing it's incredible acting but man it fucking is rough
2: the last movie i saw in theaters before this pandemic ruined movies forever was uh, Bad Boys for Life, uh, Joe, oh. Joey Pants' uh, main character role. And he, uh, spoiler alert, gets sniped so fucking hard in that movie. Yes, he does. They erased his character as confidently as you can erase a character
0: from <laughs> James, I really hope that isn't the last movie you ever see in a movie theater. I know, man. I know. This oh, sucks. Dang, that makes me nervous. This sucks so bad. <laughs> There
1: Those are worse movies you could see for your last movie, though. <laughs> no, much, it was pretty good. Movies. It was yeah. pretty good.
0: Somebody tell me who Derek Lucas is.
1: Uh, Booby uh, Miles in Friday yeah, Night Lights. Yeah, he has he's, oh, He,
0: okay. he kind of fell off
2: the face of the earth, didn't he, a yeah, little bit? He, 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 done was, done uh, well, he hurt his knee. He was in 13 years. <laughs> <He hurt his> <laughs> <Seriously>? <laughs> 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 that was before medical, you know, modern
0: medicine could get you back in a year. That was surrender. Because the doctor so was from Midland. That's why he didn't get healthy.
1: There you go. That, you know, you know, you know that Texas high school football world. Come on.
4: Yeah, he was. He was in Antoine Fisher and Friday Night Lights, and kind of and Biker
3: Boys. Biker Boys. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: He was also in uh, Thirteen Reasons Why on Netflix. Oh yeah, he was. He's like, he? he's like the, uh, the guidance counselor, wasn't he? He's the guidance counselor who really cares,
1: but is just not
2: well trained to handle the situation they're in.
1: Right. Well, if we hit Naomi Harris, we'll talk about the. Uh, We'll talk about Mitt, uh, Moonlight again, at least briefly.
2: Oh, dude, her she's the worst. I mean, purposely, but she's the hardest character to watch in that movie. Yeah.
1: yeah she
4: looks like... She's, she's really good in it, yeah, but I, I won't absolutely. watch the movie again.
1: I'm looking at her stuff. She's in Skyfall. She's in a bunch of the 007 stuff. Yeah. She's in Southpaw. Yeah. Dan, who would you pick? I'd go Joey Pants. I go mean, in
5: all, Pants? in all fairness, you're going to get a better discussion out of Emma Thompson, most likely. Right. Yeah. But Joey Pant. I mean, you talk about Midnight Run, you talk about the fugitive. Like you have some fun movies
2: in there.
0: Yeah, yes, yeah, sir. I love the Fugitive. Yep.
2: All right. Well. Also, he's a nice Italian boy. <laughs> <laughs> shit, he was in an episode of MASH.
0: Holy shit.
4: Oh, that's a deep cut. One episode of MASH, and then he was also in Oh yeah, I forgot. He was in the Goonies. <laughs> he's oh, oh yeah. Was, Goonies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Francis' deli.
5: That's right. We had to spend the money on Francis's to pay.
4: <laughs> he's also in, he's also in risky business. Yeah, as, he's uh, as he's Guido. Guido. <laughs> Look
3: at that! He's he's What's the that? Head, he's the head pimp. In, yes,
4: James, that, uh... that was directed towards you. Are you guys? <laughs> <laughs>
1: it seems racist. I Just feel like you're smells racist. Yeah. Maybe.
0: And
4: he was in Baby's Day Out. Like, how <laughs> lucky are we? <laughs> done that and episode is, right
1: itself. If Underrated. the wheel decides <laughs> <laughs> He also likes getting his cheese
2: grated in the Sopranos. People forget.
1: As we said, if the wheel decides it'll happen. We'll spin that sucker and see where we go.
2: Wheel decides. Fucking James, side. wheel decides. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh Dan, it's been a it's been a longer conversation, but it was a good one, man. We appreciate you being here. Oh, this was a blast. I appreciate coming back. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank
4: you, Dan. Love to having you, buddy. Absolutely, man. It's still shorter than rewatching Pulp Fiction. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and we're still shorter than Hateful
5: Eight.
4: Hateful
0: Eight. Yeah. Yes.
1: I'm sure you were uh, jumping at the opportunity to reprise your story about doing the Tim Roth monologue in, uh, in back in school days. Absolutely, so Luis gave you that opportunity. That's a cool story. <laughs> That is great yeah. That was great job, that's man. awesome.
2: What a what a monologue to pick too.
5: Oh, it's so much fun. It's such a cool little part of that movie. Any uh, any plugs? No, Stan? no. Just Anything? thanks a lot and uh, and stay safe and uh, have a great holiday.
1: All right. Next podcast hits December thirty first. So right on New Year's, um, we're gonna be bringing back old Chip Hessenflow. He uh, he was here with us uh, for the James Marsden episode. And so he'll be jumping back into the guest Munson's seat we enjoy Chip excited to have him back as always you can find us on Twitter Munson's at Movies catch us on Instagram Munson's at the Movies email us Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com any final thoughts from the Munson's? I'm in exactly the right place at the right time the fact that you're too fucking thick or stupid to see that that marks you down
2: mom if you listen to this you know I've been doing this for a while now just want to I'm glad you made it to the end
1: Munson's out.
3: All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?